Well, good morning, everyone. We are going to start with Luke chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 4. So hear the word of the Lord today. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, felt left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Then the devil led him to a high place and he showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all the authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point in the temple and said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written that he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift up their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all of this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. On the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read, and and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened to him. And he began by saying, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Do you pray with me? God, your word still lives, it still speaks. So help us to not just hear this as words on a page, but as your living breath. No matter how old we are or what we've been through, God, I pray that you would speak to us through my words, through your word, and that you would continue to speak to us as we go. God, teach us today. Amen. Well, there's a pretty big text here, and we started this series last week called Ghost Stories, And we talked about last week how there was these two barriers to having people live this spirit-filled life. Everybody talks about wanting to have the spirit, usually. What they mean by that is maybe enthusiasm, or what they mean by that is some power. But there's these barriers that we face to living this spirit-filled, spirit-equipped, spirit-led life of victory that pleases God the Father. And it was the first, the first barrier was this unawareness of the spirit, And then the second was this desire for control rather than the desire for the spirit. And today we'll see a third barrier and how to respond to that. 
So before we do, though, if you're a believer in Jesus, or even if you're not, have you ever met someone that you just knew, like, man, this person, they have some spiritual power. They have something extra in their life. You know, someone who can pray, and when they pray, their prayers are amazing. I mean, not only do they seem filled with awe, but if you were God, I mean, that's we won't spend too much time there, but if you were God, you'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm answering that prayer, just because that prayer is so amazing. Like, when they pray, they actually believe that God is gonna answer that prayer. Maybe it's not so much with prayer, but you just meet someone that has this spiritual power, and they have this patience that exudes from them, this endurance, this humility, this power under control, and you think, wow, that is spiritual power. Or maybe it's someone that has this power so when they are hit with some disappointment or some tragedy, they are rock solid. They have this non-anxious, unbelievable self-control and calmness that everything is gonna be okay. Have you met someone like that? Someone with that kind of spiritual power? The guy that I think of that first comes to mind is this guy named Jennings. Jennings and I met on a on a college retreat, I was a freshman, he was a senior, and we were two of about 200 or 250 college or university students that traveled one spring to this place called Green Lake, and we ended up in the same small group. And maybe it was because he was a fresh uh, senior, maybe it was because he was tall, um, maybe it was actually just because he exuded this unbelievable positivity that I first saw the spiritual power. I mean, this was not just an enthusiasm. This was a genuine love of life, a genuine love of people that came through in every aspect of how he lived, and it was evident that God was with him. But the other thing that he did was he listened intently. When someone started talking in our small group, this little discussion, he would turn not just his head, but his whole body towards the person. And he had these big beady eyes, and they would just get bigger and bigger and bigger as he listened so intently, not just to what you were saying, but how you were saying it. And when he responded, Everything that came out of his mouth seemed like it was scripture, and actually, he had so many scriptures memorized that it was hard to tell what was his words and what was God's words, but they just overflowed from his soul. It was never preachy. It never came out of left field. It was just this genuine presence of God in his life, and I just remember leaving that weekend wondering how he he got so much spiritual power and if I could ever be like that. And it wasn't until much, much later that I realized that this kind of spiritual power that I think many of us hope for isn't something that we get through DNA. It's not something we get through supernatural choice or just special abilities. It is something that happens when we consistently consistently surrender and trust God's Holy Spirit. The only thing that I think Jennings did different than many of us do is that he was constantly aware of and constantly trusting God. And when he did that, the power of God flowed through him in a way that made people like me notice. And if you can name someone like that, my guess is that you could describe, maybe a little bit different because God created us different, but you could describe the ways that they have that spiritual power flowing through them. But the barrier that they've overcome is this belief that we can resist the Holy Spirit or that we should resist the Holy Spirit or 
Or maybe it's just this unconscious thing that we do when we're faced with a difficulty and, and the Holy Spirit speaks to us and we go, ah, that seems hard. Well, we resist God when we do that. Or he says, you know, you have been consistently doing this and that is not right, it's not good, it's not God's best for you, and I love you, the Holy Spirit's saying, and I want God's best for you, so you should stop doing that. And you go, mm, but I like it. You resist the Holy Spirit when you do that. Or there's someone in need, someone that you're supposed to bring hope to, that you are called and nudged to share the truth of Jesus with that person, but you go, oh, they might be like unavailable, or they might be uninterested, or like I might offend them. And so when we do that, we resist the Holy Spirit. And in this text that we are gonna look at today, we'll see how Jesus consistently trusted the Holy Spirit, surrendered to the Holy Spirit, even when, when we think about it, it really doesn't make sense. So let's jump into this story. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, is led into the wilderness. Now, the wilderness here is the same word for desert. It's the same word that the writer uses in Genesis 1-1, okay? Remember, if you were here last week, you remember in Genesis 1-1, and one, two, the earth was formless and void, or as Eugene Peterson said, it was a soup of nothingness, an inky blackness, this chaotic emptiness. The Hebrew writers say it, it's tovu vavohu. Isn't that a fun word to say? Tovu vavohu. You can say it if you want. Ready? Tovu vavohu. And it, even, even the way it sounds, you can get this sense of swirling, this sense of chaos, this sense of mystery and blackness. And, and the lie when we're in the tovu vavohu is that we are utterly alone. And we think when we read this that the Holy Spirit just drove Jesus into the tovu vavohu, into the blackness, into the mystery, and he's tempted by the devil. Why would, God do, why would the Holy Spirit do that? And it doesn't sound like he has his REI desert tent. It doesn't sound like he has morel hiking boots. It doesn't sound like he has any food or it doesn't sound like anyone is with him. And I mean, not even the freezer dried meals, right? Like that are just nasty. He's totally alone. That's what many of us, and I do this far too often. That's not just at first glance what we see. That's the only thing we see. And if that's you, because it's me too often, it's so hard to trust the Holy Spirit. And it's so easy to resist him. Because we think, I'm all by myself. And, and the Spirit drove me here. But we're not looking close enough. We're not, we're not looking close enough. If we continue and look at this, how did Jesus become full of the Holy Spirit? Anybody know? Before Jesus is tested in the wilderness, he's baptized. John 3, I mean Luke 3. There's a long genealogy that we won't get into today, but the event right before this, Jesus is baptized. The writer tells us that when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And when he was baptized and when he was praying, the heavens were opened and the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And then a voice from heaven came and said, you are my son whom I love. 
with you I am well pleased. In that moment, three incredible things happened. First, the heavens were opened. I don't know where we got this idea that heaven was far away, like an inaccessible solar system that would take so many light years to get to that we would die in the, in the first place or in the meantime. But the heavens were opened and it was right there. And over and over and over in scripture, we see godly people that live this life walking with God in, in a moment of need, they see a glimpse of heaven. Stephen, in Acts 7, when he was about to be killed, he saw a glimpse of heaven and the risen Jesus right there in his midst. Or Enoch or Elisha, these prophets of old who spoke truth to people, they both had these mysterious departures from heaven. And even Moses, who spoke to God face to face, at the end of his life, when he dies, the text makes it clear that he is fully alive. There is a vibrancy and a vigor in his life, and no one can find out where his body is. He saw God. The heaven, the spiritual realm, is so close to us, and we miss it especially when we're afraid to trust the Spirit, especially when we see ourselves in the tovu vavohu. So the heavens open, but it gets better because then Jesus is told, you are my son. Now I think if we're honest, we could say, all right, I'm a child of God, you're a child of God. We're all children of God, right? Right, that's pretty easy to say. Yep, I'm God's child, you're God's child, we're God's children, but do we believe that? Do we live that? Jesus has grown up in this family knowing he was different, but not quite knowing exactly why, because he gave up his divine privileges. And so there's rumors about him. Oh, you had a different father than your father. And in this moment, God puts a belonging on him. We talked about food insecurity, of how kids can go home on a Friday and not know where that food is going to come from. If they have a family that's insecure, you know what that feels like. When you walk home and you do something wrong and you're about to tell your parents and you have no idea how they're going to react. There's an insecurity there. But when God says, you are my son, there is belonging there. There is a permanency there that says no matter what happens, you are in the family. Can we share that? with other people. That will help us trust the Holy Spirit. When we can see that the heavens are close and when we can see that we belong to God's family, that helps us trust God. But I think maybe for me, the biggest thing that helps me trust God in this moment, God says, not only this is my son whom I love, he says, in whom I am well pleased or in whom I delight. So God doesn't just love you. He actually loves likes you. There are far too many people in this world that can accept that God loves them but cannot accept that God likes them. But that's what the writer is saying here. In this moment of Jesus' baptism, he has been giving these three incredible gifts. Heaven is close. The spiritual realm is right here. You are part of my family and I have staked a claim on you and I actually find satisfaction in our relationship. I just delight in watching you grow. I delight in seeing you do things. You and are someone I find joy in. God likes you. And when you accept that truth, 
It's another step closer to trusting the Holy Spirit. If you're a note taker, you might say it like this. There's reasons that we can trust the Holy Spirit. If you are someone who resists the Holy Spirit, then I need, I need some reasons. I need some logic. And, and the Holy Spirit assures Jesus of his true identity. And that's not just for Jesus. We see that over and over in scripture. Moses is assured of his true identity. David is assured of his true identity. The prophets, Elijah, Isaiah, they are assured of their true identity. Not what other people say, not sometimes even what our parents say, but what the heavenly father says. You are my child. I find delight in you. I love you and I like you. That, the reason that that's so important is I think the reason that Jesus gets driven into the wilderness because in this moment, the spirit comes down and stays with him. You know, the spirit usually, at least up until this point in the scripture, the spirit comes on someone, they have this word or the spirit comes on someone, they have this power and you might have felt that too. I feel like God is with me at some point and I do something amazing, but then I feel like he's alone and then I just act like a jerk um, or some other version of that. And yet in this moment, the spirit comes on Jesus and stays with him. That's how he's filled with the spirit. And after that moment of being filled with the spirit, the spirit drives him into the wilderness, the Tovu Vavohu, and he's alone, or he thinks he's alone. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he's just consistently trusting the spirit, so he's not alone. And he realizes that the Holy Spirit is with him. Why? Because these wonderful truths of being God's child, being secure in his family, having God like you, really don't make a difference unless we take them in and we live them out. And how do you know that? People in school, how do you know when you learn something? How do your teachers check to see if you've learned it? What do you have to do? I heard it. A test, right? That's how we know. The wilderness is a test. It says that Jesus was driven into the wilderness and for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Well, guess what? In the Greek words of this writer, tempted and tested are the same word. Checking for understanding. Does Jesus believe what God has said about him? that the spiritual realm is close, that he belongs to God, that the Holy Spirit has filled him, and that God actually likes him. Well, now we find out. And that's true in our lives, too. Not only does the Holy Spirit assure us of our true identity, if you're taking notes, number two would be the Holy Spirit prepares us to pass our tests so that we can not just take this in, but we can live this out so that it can become part of who we are. And so when Jesus is battling the devil, if you will, we have to remember that there's more going on here than just some temptations about food or about fame or about taking power. Because 40 is always a metaphor for something else. Remember how a woman becomes pregnant and she is pregnant for 40 weeks? In that time for a woman, her single life or her um, getting to do her own thing is dying. But soon, a new life will be born. Moses spends 40 years as, as a child of Pharaoh 
as a prince of Egypt. The Hebrew baby part of him kind of died. The prince of Egypt was born. And then he spends 40 years in a Midian wilderness. And that happened. Then the Egyptian prince dies, and this Hebrew shepherd is born. 40 is always a metaphor for something dying and something being born. And I would just like to say to you, I would submit that Jesus, something is dying in Jesus and something new is being born. Because it's not just about passing our tests. It's about living into that identity. And Jesus has been the son of a humble carpenter from Nazareth for this time, these 30 years. And now he is coming out in public ministry. And he can't just come out in public ministry as the son of a humble carpenter from Nazareth. He has to come out as the son of God and the savior of the world. He has to live what he is now knowing as true. And, and he says to his followers in John 16 that the Holy Spirit needs to be with you. He says, it's good that I'll go away in John 16 because when I do, the comforter will come. Jesus wasn't alone in the wilderness. The comforter came to him. The comforter was with him, supporting him. He was in the wilderness and he was hungry, but he was not empty. He went in filled, he came out filled. Why? Because he was feeding on the word of God. And I know that sounds kind of weird, but that's just, I think, a way that God is saying that the comforter was with him. It also says in John 16 that the Holy Spirit will not just comfort you, he will counsel us. Jesus was being guided in his time in the wilderness, being reminded of what happened at his baptism. And so when the devil does come and say, hey, I want you to fill this basic need, turn the stones into bread, he says, no. No, man does not live on bread alone. He didn't do that because he's supernatural. Jesus Philippians 2 says, Jesus humbly gave up his divine privileges. Philippians 2 says, though he, Jesus, was God, he did not think of equality with God something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave. And being born as a human being and appearing in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God. See, this isn't just some, some far away ancient story. This happens in our life. And because Jesus had to give up his divine privileges, chose to give up his divine privileges, he is showing us how we can respond when we are put in our wilderness. When we go through middle school, that's tovu vavohu. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. When our job is cut, that's tovu vavohu. If we're married, when our spouse comes and says, I can't do this anymore, that's tovu vavu. And in those moments, remember, the lie is that we're alone and we have to do it in our own strength. Well then, when the Holy Spirit tries to speak to us, we can't tell the difference between the Holy Spirit and Satan, so we just resist. No, no, these moments are preparing us so that we can pass these tests. And Jesus, showing us in his humanity, that he responds with the word of God to these temptations is not showing us any super spiritual ability. He's not showing us that because he's the son of God, he can do this. No, as a human, he simply responds with the word of God to the basic need to feed his hunger, which can be a whole lot more than just hunger. 
to this desire for power to take something that's not his, because he could do a lot with that power that would be good. He could justify it just like we do, but he doesn't. And then to this, this invitation to create fame, throw yourself down, then everyone will know. That's creating fame. But if Jesus doesn't do that, then for him to tell people that he's the son of God is to invite faith. And that's his third temptation. Because people have to have a real faith, not just see a sign and like believe the sign. They need to believe without seeing. And so he's invited to have faith. This is how Jesus shows us that he is trusting the Holy Spirit. And I don't think there was ever a moment that the Holy Ghost left Jesus because there was never a moment that Jesus resisted the Holy Ghost. And when you and I learn to not resist the Holy Ghost, we can start to trust the Holy Ghost. And when the Holy Ghost sends us into our wilderness, whatever it is, I'll just know it's dark or it's chaotic or it's confusing, the Holy Ghost will be with us. The Holy Ghost will be reminding us that we are God's child, that the Holy Spirit is with us, and that we actually have this little glint in God's eye because he delights in us. And we'll come out stronger and more convinced of who we are, whose we are, and what we're called to. If you're a note taker, I, I would say it like this. Not only does the Holy Spirit prepare us to pass our tests, but the Holy Spirit convinces us of our purpose and our power in the Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit comforts, the Holy Spirit counsels, Jesus says in John 16, but the Holy Spirit also convicts of sin. And so sometimes in the wilderness, we'll be convicted of our wrong living or our wrong thinking, and we're invited to change in those moments. Since Jesus didn't have any sin, he's not convinced or convicted, he's convinced more than ever of who he is, of the power that God has given, and of what he is called to do. Because think about it. He comes into the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit, goes into the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit, comes out of the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit, and then is able to stand up in his hometown. Okay, we were looking at yearbooks a while ago. Man, when the next reunion comes up, I mean, I'm not 5'3 and 80 pounds anymore. I'm not the goofball that like pulled the girl's chair out because I had a crush on her and broke her tailbone, almost. Sorry, Angie. Like, I'm kind of a responsible human being now. And ultimately, I'm God's. But it's hard to go back to the hometown because people kind of see you in this certain light. So when Jesus comes back to his hometown, they say, after he stands up, isn't that the carpenter's son? Like, how audacious can you, do, can you be to make this claim that this scripture is now fulfilled in our hearing, even though it's true? And they speak gracious words to him, but he doesn't take their praise. And then, when he rebukes them, they get really mad, and later in the story, we'll see in, uh, in, in f- verse 28, They want to throw him off a cliff. But just like he didn't take their praise, he doesn't take their their criticism. And there's this peculiar little line. When they want to throw him off the cliff, in verse 29, Jesus simply walks through the crowd and leaves. He's not affected by their praise. 
He's not affected by their criticism. And when they want to do something violent in this moment, he can simply slip through the crowd. What is that about? Well, I think that's about this third idea. Because Jesus was convinced of his purpose and he experienced the Spirit's power. He is living in this sacred time and space where other people's power, other people's influence simply have no effect on him and he can slide through the crowd. It's, it's this idea of a holy moment. When you're in it, you know it's much bigger than you and yet you know God is there. And that's what I think Jesus is experiencing. He is living in this sacred time and space. And we can live in it too. It happens. It's still happening. But it comes from us being willing to trust the Spirit. So as we prepare for communion, can you ask the Spirit what he's been doing in your life? what he's been affirming or what he's been convicting of? Is there an action or an attitude that God is saying, I love you. I, I like you. This, this isn't my best for you. But you know in your heart of hearts you've been resisting that. This is an invitation for you to do what's called repent, to turn away from, yes, I agree that that's wrong, I choose to follow you, Jesus, in your way of being right and good and living in the light. You can trust the Holy Spirit in that. See, when we go into the wilderness and know that God is there and we pass our tests, we come out with a new boldness and a new confidence. That's not just for Jesus, that's for each of us. And when someone else sees you do that, it's another reminder that they might be able to do that. See, we don't live this life for ourselves or just to have a personal relationship with God, though that's very important. It's an eternal question. But we do this because others need to see it lived out. Because Jesus seems sometimes too far away, because a pastor seems too professional. But when you live this out, somebody else says, I can live in the power of the Spirit. I can trust the Holy Spirit. And new life happens over and over and over. And if you're not sure what to pray, let me just give you this reminder from Romans 8. It says that in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, when we don't know what we're to pray for, the Spirit himself intercedes or talks to God for us, even with words that can't be expressed. So if you're not sure what to pray right now, I just pray that you would ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to speak on behalf of you, and that God will hear you. In faith, you can know that today. So trust that the Holy Spirit is at work for your good. And you can trust that the Holy Spirit is working in your trials. You can trust that the Holy Spirit is with you in the tovu vabohu. And you can trust that the Holy Spirit is at work in your whole life for your good, for his glory. Amen.